Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others in the way that Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. So regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. guys are having a wonderful week. Um, I hope everything is going well for you guys this week and that you are somehow managing um, to stay sane in the midst of everything that's going on in our country. Um, Before we just get started, I just want to take a minute, uh, just, just a moment of silence to be able to pray for the victims um, of those lost in Atlanta, um, and uh, also just in general for um, the victims that have been lost to violence this year, uh, whether it was anti-Asian racism or whether it was anti-blackness, if we can just take a minute to just grieve and lament um, with our black brothers and sisters who are also not being covered day by day, um, and also our Asian brothers and sisters, um, just, you know, the people of color in this country, uh, that is being more openly marginalized now than ever. Uh, if we can just lift up a prayer for the, the, the acts that have been covered in the media and the acts that haven't been covered in the media. So let's just take a minute to pray starting now. Amen. Um, We're going to go and continue through Romans and Romans 13. I I, I don't want to give a trigger warning, um, but Romans 13 might feel like... (sighs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. You, you guys know that I'm literally just going through, and I know Romans has been really rough. And I, I, I fear that this is going to be raw, um, but I give a trigger warning um, with the full knowledge um, and challenge that I think we as Christians have the freedom to face is that God can be louder and stronger than any trigger. Um, we cannot allow our human experiences to stop ourselves from wrestling with the word of God um, because God's word is powerful enough, it's strong enough, 
it is healing enough to bind our wounds. And so with that being said, um, I just want to give a slight trigger warning. Uh, our church is made up mainly of people of color, although we do not have non-people of color as well. Um, and so because, because of this, I just wanted to give that trigger warning. Let's read Romans 13, shall we? Romans 13. Um, Romans is after the book of Acts. It's before the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're just continuing through um, Romans. It's, it's only 14 verses. So I'm just going to read it for us here. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, before we read, um, I don't know where you guys are at right now, but... And I, and I miss saying this every time, especially in this time of Lenten. I pray that we would be able to take God's word with the reverence that it is due. So even if you guys are not standing in your places as we would have um, in corporate worship, I hope that you guys are all attentive at this moment more so than ever in this whole worship uh, for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, the, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and every other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we sit here before your holy and perfect word, breaking and questioning this passage. But Abba, we know that our greatest questions will not unhinge your authority. It will not unhinge scripture. And so Abba, we rest in you knowing that you are greater than any of our wrestling, that you are greater than any of our questions and our pains. Abba, we come before you broken, 
But Lord, we know that you love your people and that you have greater things in store for us than we can even imagine for ourselves. And so we rest in you. Abba, I need your help. I am weak and weary. Abba, I am human. And this, Lord, you know, has been a difficult week for all of us. So Abba, I fall prostrate at your feet. Humbly and publicly, I fall at your feet in my limitedness and my pain. Abba, may this word be yours and yours alone. Hide me behind your cross, that only you are magnified and that only you are glorified. Jesus, we cling to you right now. Abba, open the ears and the eyes of everyone in our congregation right now, that they would be able to hear what you have for them. For there is no timelier time to go over this passage than now. We give you glory. And Abba, we trust you. Even before we fully know, even before we fully understand God, we trust in you. We love you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. The title of this sermon is For the Last Day. The title of this sermon is For the Last Day. The main idea of this sermon is be clothed with Christ. Be clothed in the armor of God. You can also write um, as a another main idea is look to the last day. Look to the last day. Look to the last day. Okay, I'm going to go over, I contemplated, I almost like scrapped this first part of the chapter completely, but I believe that it is God's word and that I must honor it. And so this is also my obedience to God in wrestling with this openly together. Um, and so we're going to go over this first part of this passage. So this, this first part is, is, a, is a government talk that Paul gives us. I'm just going to read it through one more time. Um, Romans 4 verse 14 verse uh, Romans 13 verse 1 let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that have exist those that exist have been instituted by God therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who's in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And I just want to, we're just going to go through this, and we're going to face this, and 
I hope that not just in in the the ways that we address this as a community, but also in the fact that we are addressing all the difficult passages alongside the passages that are easier for us to digest. Maybe Romans 8, it, uh, it's actually not always easy. Romans 8 is not always easy for everybody, but comparatively, it might be easier than Romans 12 or even Romans 13. Um, I hope that we as a church would be a church that does not shy away from the word of God. Um, and I hope that that is communicated to you this morning. The first thing that I want to, oh man, I'm talking a little bit like, like a reporter, like I'm reporting, um, but bear with me if it sounds a little bit monotonous, I'm just trying to give you guys the facts so that we can all make informed decisions for ourselves theologically um, as we interpret scripture. But I just want to lay out a couple of, a couple of things. So this, the context of this passage is that it's fixed in its social location. What I mean by that is that Romans hated paying taxes. Uh, they had tax revolts, so they revolted against taxes. They didn't understand taxes. There were many people who refused to pay the government. And at the same time, Israel, there were zealots in Israel who were using violence to try to break free from Roman oppression. Many people were sympathetic to this because the growing unrest towards the government was rising and not necessarily for any particular reason. Uh, it just had to do with the fact that government people were more anti-government back then. And so they didn't want to pay taxes. Israel had every reason to want to break free from Roman oppression and they were using the means of violence to do so. And so that's the social location that this passage is in. Bear in mind that Paul is talking to the church of, of Rome. And so he is addressing a specific issue within a specific congregation at a specific time. The reason why I say this is because this passage has been misused for Christian nationalism in America today. I want to let you guys know that although there are, and I, I am going against a lot of the commentaries that I was reading in order to come to this conclusion, because for whatever reason, in, <clears throat> in the American church, a lot of people have taken larger liberties with this text and greater pains with this text to say, oh, things are fixed in its social location, but still follow this as though it applies today. That happens with Ephesians 6, right? With it happened in the, you know, you, we don't want to admit it, but it happened just a hundred years ago in this country about slavery, about woman and woman's rights. And in this way, our, um, our Western church, and I'm going to call them out, a lot of our leaders in the evangelical movement, such as John Piper, John MacArthur, even sometimes Tim Keller, have made, they have made strong interpretations that are personal, that are not always reflective of the biblical text, and so before I go into any level of theological interpretation that I have to just do on a basic level as, a, as your pastor and as the person preaching this message, I want to let you guys know that this was a specific 
part of Romans that was directed to a specific people who are living in a specific context of time. Okay. It's referring mainly to taxes because people were being delinquents when it came to paying the government. And a lot of them didn't have a good reason for it. I also want to specify and point out that Paul is a Roman citizen. I'm not, I'm not saying that this isn't the inerrant authority of God. And I'm not saying that this isn't scripture. I am not discounting scripture in any way, but I'm point, I want, I want to take this moment to point to the author of this text as Paul and not Christ. Why I make that distinction is because sometimes Paul will contradict Christ because he's human. Sometimes you will read contradictions in scripture and you will say, why is this here? That does not speak against the authority of God, but it only speaks to the human authorship of the scriptures. Paul is a Roman citizen by birth, which means that he was born contrary and opposed to a lot of people who are marginalized in the Roman empire. Paul is born with a certain level of privilege that was not easily obtained. A lot of people paid their way into citizenship, but Paul, he was born into it. It speaks to a certain level of privilege and a certain level of positive outlook towards government that might not have been the case for many people at the time. So Paul has a positive, mainly a positive experience with Roman government. At the same time, I do not want to discount the fact that Paul was also persecuted for his faith. However, that was to the Jewish theocracy that he ultimately had to pay for in the end. He was executed by the Roman government. Later on, that was how he passed. But even that was a beheading, which is fast. It was not painful and it was not um, by the standards of back then, not the standards of now, cruel and unusual. Um, and so... Paul has this specific experience with government um, and he also speaks throughout scripture. He speaks about government in a very idealistic way. I just want to point that out because for Paul, I think government is pretty clear um, to be. And, and, and I think it, it's in line with the teachings of the Torah. It's in line with the teachings of uh, the Mosaic law, which is the Jewish law, the Jewish canonical law. Um, to obey the authorities of government, okay? Why that also needs to be point out, pointed out is because Judaism and the Jewish nation state at the time was a theocracy, which means that the religion governed government. And so there was legitimate basis within canonical scriptures as to why the Bible needed to uphold the government authorities as ministers of the law. That is a very Jewish understanding of government and authority that is very specific to the specific model of government that is theocracy. So when you guys feel discomfort and dissonance when you read this passage, know that it is because it's you are not 
you are not in the wrong for feeling that way. There are discrepancies in the text between the text social location and context and our social location and context. I also want to point out here that Paul has not existed in a state of democracy before. A lot of people miss this, is that the Roman Empire was a dictatorship that is condemned in our society today. Why I say that, a lot of people look at scripture and say, well, why did Paul pastorally tell slaves to stay in slavery? Why did Paul tell women to stay submitting under their husbands? Although that passage, if you look at it, it's actually submitting to one another. And I can get into that when, if at any point we get into Ephesians, I will, I will do it. Men and women of our ministry, I want to make clear that as I wrestle with scripture as well, I want to go through all the difficult passages with you because I believe that God can handle our questions. And I believe that there are things that we can go to God for, for answers. Even the ways that we might not agree with what is written. And so given these things, I want to, I want, I want to clarify that Paul cannot fathom democracy right now. The reason why he takes pastoral approaches in order in, in the particular way of telling people, no, please submit under your authority. Like, the reason why Paul takes slaves, obey your masters, and women, obey your husbands, and, and takes these patriarchal stances that might, like, in our, in our ethics and values today might be seen like Paul is being complicit to the oppression at the time. The reason for that is because Paul is a Jew as much as he's a Roman citizen. Um, he lives under privilege. Yes, he does. But at the same time, Jews, the Jewish colony is a colony. So he is also a minority in the Roman Empire. And this Roman Empire is a dictatorship, which means that Paul in who he is might not have been able to fathom civil disobedience. And so he naturally does not care to take large arches of, of the Bible to specify how people should be in government, most likely because there was nothing you can do about government at the time. That's very important to specify. So he has this background of learning in theocratic studies through the scriptures. And he also is a Roman citizen who has a positive experience with the Roman government. And on top of that, he has no idea of what democracy looks like. In this time, more so than ever before, because the Greek and Roman empires, they did have you know, civil court and they were more like in Athens was a nation state that had some sort of level of civilian participation in government. And so that that's way, way ahead of, they were way, way ahead of their time. But even still, the Roman Empire as a whole is a dictatorship. And so Paul 
does not have a say in government, okay? Whatever, whatever the dictator determines is what the dictator determines. Um, and it's clear that he doesn't just, he just doesn't go there. But that's not just because of a limit of Paul. I think it's also, it just speaks to the limit of the times. And I want us to understand that. To not take the Bible so literally that we apply. Because that is also, if you are to take the Bible so literally that you take it out of its context and apply it woodenly into our society today, that's called fundamentalism. And it's actually seen to be incorrect exegesis because you are not taking into consideration the social location and the people that wrote these texts in this time. Okay. And so I, I just want you guys to know that to just pull this out of context and say, well, slavery is condoned, pull this out of context and say, well, Women have no say in their family and in the church. Women should not be allowed to read scripture at any given point. To pull things out of scripture and say, well, that, that is incorrect. You can't just, you, I mean, everybody can come to their own personal conclusions about what scripture is saying, but I just want to let you guys know that to pull that out is incorrect. The reason why I point that out is because Christian nationalism in America has done this. And I'm going to go into this just a little bit more. Um, what, so if, if, if all of these things are, are, are the case, right, um, and there are these limits that Paul has in speaking about government, then what, what is Paul um, talking about here? I think he, he seems to be referencing the spirit of give to Caesar what is Caesar's when Christ was talking. Um, give to the government what you owe. I want to specify one word and, and just clarify a word. The word submit in the beginning of chapter 13, when it says submit to government, it actually is a greater scope than just obedience. It has to, it has to do with standing under the authority. Um, and, and Paul ties actually this in to, because he is talking about don't disobey government for no reason, because the government has been, you know, upheld by, by, by scripture or by God. He's talking about them mainly in terms of taxes. Which means that he is talking about this in the context of owing something. And so I, I want to clarify the intention of this passage um, into paying what you owe. And um, managing prudently what we have without squandering it. Some churches go through classes about financial stewardship. And the reason for that is because stewarding our finances, giving to the church what is the church's in terms of offering and tithe, giving to the government what is the government in terms of taxes, this is all a healthy application of the fruit of the spirit. Um, and it is very biblical to do so. And so what Paul is addressing here is as Christians, we must be model citizens, not because we are loyal to government authority or because we are loyal to the governments that we are a part of or because government matters. It's, it's because we are loyal to the Lord and we seek to obey because we seek to obey God. Right. And so Paul is talking about this. So I, 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 I've shared this story before, but in, in college, um, there was a time 
period when I was, um, I had a job in my church, but then the president of the ministry kept doing my job. And I was really frustrated because it was my job, but he kept doing it, right? He was my leader and I was following him, but instead of doing his job, he kept doing my job. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And um, I was talking to my pa my home church pastor, because this was in my, my college church ministry in Bang, and I was talking to my home church pastor, or one of the pastors that uh, served in my church, and he goes, I, I don't, I, I disagree with him on a lot of ways, but these words that he gave me, this wisdom he gave me has stuck with me. He said, Jane, why do you, why do you live out your, your, um, your leadership role? Why do you serve? And I said, well, I serve to serve the body of Christ. And he looked at me, he said, no, you do everything because you're obeying God. And that got me really quiet. And then he asked me, he said, Jane, what if every single thing that you tried to do in this ministry never happened? Because somebody kept doing your job. Does that mean you not do your job? I said, no. He said, why? And I was silent. He said, it's because you're obeying God when you serve. You don't serve for the fruit. You don't serve for the body, you serve the Lord. And because you serve the Lord, you serve the body. Because you love God, you love God's people. We have that disconnect sometimes in the body of Christ where we love people, God's people, and we rely on God's people for things that only God can give. Security, extreme unconditional love, loyalty. These things are things that some levels of support are things that we can only receive from God. But when we, when we try to get that in people, that's when the insecurity comes. We are able to engage in unconditional love and be bonded together as a family with blood that is thicker than other blood, the blood of Jesus for eternity, because we are under God. And Paul is talking about standing under authority in terms of of, of God, of obeying God, not obeying government and, and, and being loyal to government, but being loyal to God. I want to point out a couple of um, counter arguments that might exist because I think they're worth it. Well, what about Christian? The first one is, is, and I just addressed it is, what about Christian nationalism? A lot of churches in America use this passage to say that rulers have divine authority. I don't know if you know this, notice this, but even that constant value um, divides along party lines, which what I'm saying is conservative Christians in this country might support the president under the divine authority of God when that president is red, but not when that president is blue and so on and so forth. It can go the other way as well. Christians that are blue support the president when he is blue and not when he is red. And, and I, I have wrestled with this so much myself, although 
I am not quite either um, at this point in my life. But we cannot take scripture out of context and then just slap it on our circumstances. And I think there is a, an important lesson to be learned here. Um, because behind the act of doing that is a fundamental unwillingness to wrestle with scripture and wanting answers from God rather than wrestling with God. Right. Alongside a natural desire to just listen to what we want to listen to. Um, and both of these are not okay. We look to God, the authority over the person. And I've seen a lot, I've seen a lot of passages, a lot of different, I was listening to pastors this week about this passage. A lot of people who said, if you don't apply this today, you're doing the Bible a disservice. But Paul specifically means this for, for a specific case. And in other cases, he says the opposite. So can we say, although the value of being model citizens and leading, being the salt and light of this world by example, and I, I do agree that we should pay our taxes. We should pay our taxes, okay? We should pay our taxes because we are Christians and we should be honest um, in the way that we live our lives. Always. Um, not looking to skirt the law, but walking through it not only because it's right to or lawful to do so, but because we can trust that God will provide for us, even if we pay what is due um, to the governing authority at the time, God will still provide for us. We need not have such a hold over money that we cannot pay our taxes, okay? And I think that value system goes and extends further when it comes to tithing and offering. And so in that sense, I do, I do agree that we, we, Ought to be the salt and light that way. However, if in the case of this, right, this specific case, Paul talks another way. And in the specific case, in another specific case where the church is being persecuted, Paul talks another way. Although the underlying value of being the salt and light is important, it's clear that this particular passage is not transcultural, meaning that it does not extend past its culture and time, quite like the gospel does. The gospel is transcultural um, in, its, in its intention, in its method, in its writing. However, this passage is not transcultural in its intention, in its writing, and in its method. You have to see that um, in order to be able to properly glean what you need to glean from the passage, okay? And so this passage does not condone Christian nationalism. It tells us that we should not be delinquents to the government without any reason while repping and walking in a manner worthy of the call of God, which is a quote from Philippians, right? Polythueste, right? We ought to walk in a manner that is inconsistent with Christ, which means that that might mean that we might have to pay our taxes. 
right? Simply because we owe it to the government. Um, and Paul's goal here, and this is, this is another thing we have to clarify, because Paul grew up learning theocracy and dictatorship, but not democracy, right? And so Paul is used to a government that is ruled by the church. There is no separation of church and state in Jewish language. So the danger of America calling themselves a Christian nation is that we are taking theocratic values. And we are, we are a Christian nation because Christ is, or we are Christian people. We are the body of Christ and Christ, it, we clothe ourselves with Christ, which I will get to, but theocracy is different from the government that we are living in today. Paul has never seen citizens participating in government to the degree that we do now. We vote our rulers in. That is significantly different than what was back then. We also see that Christ is a humble king. A humble king that tells us to pay our taxes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and, to, and the Lord what is the Lord's. But we also see Christ as a person that doesn't just sit with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Christ was not buddy-buddy with Herod. Christ sat with lepers. He sat with the untouchables in his society. He sat with sinners, the people that everybody else looked down on, good, upstanding citizens and members of church. Christ didn't walk with them. Christ's priority was the low, was the vulnerable. This can't be lost. We look to Christ to determine our ethics and our morals, not to government and not to Paul's context but to Christ. And so it's important to see this passage with, with sober eyes, bearing in mind who Jesus was and how he was given capital punishment and lynched, brutalized in a moment of blatant injustice politically. so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's what scripture is founded upon. So to pull this context out and just to apply it is not only culturally blind, but scripturally inconsistent with the gospel. That's strong words. The reason why I need to, okay, the reason why I need to clarify that is because, and I'm learning this in, in class these days, and it has been a journey, a journey. But modern-day conservative Christianity, that is evangelical Christianity, and also some 
some parts of the reform circle, not all parts, but some, is based in Christian nationalism. Even the values of complementarianism, the word complementarianism was coined by John Piper and Wayne Grudem, the guy who is the face of the ESV in the 1990s. Wayne Grudem is not a theologian. Nobody else listens to him other than conservative Christianity. So that word in and of itself is not fully based in, it's, it's, it's just not the concept in and of itself. And this idea of biblical manhood and womanhood, I know I'm going to blow all y'all's minds right now, but the way that it was taught in these circles came alongside, directly alongside, on the same page as a biblical basis for Christian republicanism. I'm not saying, to those of you guys who might be complementarian leaning, I'm not saying that that's wrong. Um, I, I won't ever hound on anybody's personal interpretation and what they believe in, okay? But I will say this, that Christian nationalism is the basis of a lot, a lot of what we read, even the ESV Bible exudes implications in their writing that is directly tied to republicanism. I'm not saying that republicanism is wrong, but I'm saying that this, this biblical illiteracy is not consistent with the gospel. I also want to point out another counter argument that people might have. And that's about systemic oppression. What about government ordained and sanctioned systemic oppression? What about slavery? What about the fact that our government is not able to properly identify anti-Asian hate crimes? Literally will not pass a bill that has nothing to do with power and it has nothing to do with money. It just condemns hate crimes against Asians and they won't pass the bill. What about terrorist states, extreme militant Islamic states in Western Asia that regularly kill off Christians? What about states that are severely persecute, that severely persecute Christians in Asia and in Africa? Even for some of us who are Koreans, I have both South Korean and North Korean blood flowing in me because I'm Korean. Because that division came, it's, very, it's a very early division. And yet half of me is now a communist state that kills off, shoots off Christians and puts them in labor camps as though we're in the 1940s. Does God uphold these governments? The short and resounding answer is no. No. A contemporary leader of this and good example is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? 
Everybody has heard of Bonhoeffer, Pastor Bonhoeffer. He is a pastor that participated in a plot against Hitler. He was killed days before um, World War II was over. After fighting as a Christian pastor, he could have continued to just be a professor in Union Theological Seminary out there. Union Theological Seminary is connected to Columbia. Um, at that point, Union Theological Seminary was the like pinnacle of theology. Bart was there at some point, right? Um, so he could have had a very good job, safe, tucked away in America, away from harm, but he chose as a direct application of discipleship because Bonhoeffer was very big on discipleship, right? So as a very, as a, as a call to sincere love and action for the body of Christ, he went back into harm's way and he was a part of the resistance against Hitler and Nazis while the German church was in cahoots Bonhoeffer went against, and he was killed days before, days before it was all over, legitimately days. Um, because Christ loves the broken. Christ loves the weak. He fights for the vulnerable. And if the evil is that great, and if the systems of government that are involved are so evil that they go against God, and if we are to obey God, that might lead us to carry out our faith in action that might look like resistance against the government. That's, that's, I think that that's biblical. I also want to point out, because Bonhoeffer is a, um, he's a evangelical, like, hero, but Bonhoeffer was not evangelical. <laughs> so that's another important thing to point out, is that he, if he existed today, and we saw, some of us saw his Christianity, they, they would have judged him, because he's not reformed or evangelical. He's he's kind of evangelical, but he's dead. yeah. Anyway, um, so there there's also that. So I say that as an evangelical, guys. I am an evangelical. I am a strong evangelical. I am. I I have grown up Presbyterian, right? But I I just need to point that out. Okay. Submission in this context was temporary. When Christ when. When, when Paul was talking about submission against the government, he wasn't talking about submission against uh, submission to the government as the be-all, end-all. But it was a quick fix. Because Paul was not focused on government. He was focused on eternity. So the way that Paul might apply these values that he's upholding is, he would, I think he would tell Christians in China that are persecuted to be model citizens of the government without giving into their government-mandated religion. Now to that, a lot of Chinese people living in, in CCP right now, they might think, or, or a part of the CCP right now, they might say to be Christian is to not be a model citizen. And if that's the case, then so be it. 
So I just want to clarify that for you guys. That there is... There is some wrestling that needs to be done with this passage. And for those of you guys who are listening, you guys might be like... Your minds might be blown right now. I know I've taken the very I've taken a very thinking oriented approach and that's because God's told us last week to think through our faith. Okay? To test our faith. And I think to test our faith is to ask hard questions. Okay? And here are some of the ways that I have wrestled out this passage with the with the learning that I have um, for the sake of the body. So then what is Paul's goal? What is Paul's goal in this passage? Why is he telling us to live out sincere love, to owe nothing to anybody, to submit to the government? Why? What's his goal? If his goal, because see, in the way that the Christian church talks about nationalism, nationalism is the goal. Because whoever's on top has been ordained by God. However, Paul does not see it that way. Because his goal is the last day. His goal is the last day. And this brings me to my final point. It's that Jesus is coming. Our ruler is Jesus. And eschatology needs to govern the way that we live. What eschatology is, sorry, that's a really big word. I just, I'm so sorry. If I have big words and you don't know all the words, just write it down. I will explain it after. Eschatology is the study of the end times, right? The study of the, like the way we see Christ coming needs to govern the way that we live. And this is what really highlights the transience of everything Paul is saying. Paul does not actually care about who is ruler, because Jesus is coming. Paul does not actually care about whether or not the government is fully aligned with scripture because Jesus is coming. He's saying, Christians, make it until Jesus comes. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's saying, we are just gonna continue to go and make it until the day Jesus comes. And then he mentions this love. That love is the fulfillment of the law. Because without love, there is no purpose. Without this fulfillment in, of Christ and what he did, there is no purpose. And just to draw back and to echo Romans 12, you know, to, re to renew our minds with humility and sober-mindedness, to have a perspective on our life that doesn't revolve around ourselves and our successes, but around the family, around the family of Christ, right? To have sincere love for one another, to be devoted to one another in intimacy and tenderness, to be set on fire for the spirit because of God, not just because we have a lot of things that are, we can get passionate about, not just for the sake of getting passionate, but to be set on fire by the Spirit, to live in harmony with others and to seek peace. That's the sincere love that Paul is talking about here. And he mentions these imageries of, of this lifestyle and these two dichotomies of day versus night and, and this element of clothes. But it's important actually to kind of also... Um, these two obviously stand alone in our culture right now, like living in the night versus living in the day, taking off clothes, putting on clothes. And we've talked about this in Arise and in other places, but this is actually also talking about day clothes versus night clothes. So you can actually see this like, you ain't, 
I don't know if y'all are wearing your... How many of you guys are wearing your PJs right now? If you are, no judgment. <laughs> None whatsoever, all right? If y'all if, if y'all are wearing what is comfortable to you while listening to this sermon, then that's good. At least y'all are comfortable externally, even while we wrestle internally, right? Um, but would you wear your PJs to church? Let's say church opens up in like May or June, because it could with mass vaccination. Not, not saying that that's what our church has decided. I'm saying anything is possible once everybody is vaccinated. But um, what what would you what what would you what would you right what like would you wear your pajamas? This is my home, but I'm still wearing this button down. Even though I have not been wearing anything close to this all week, I looked at myself in the mirror today. I was like, wow, I look like a human being. It's crazy because I have not looked like a human being. Everybody in this house knows I barely left my bed since Thursday. <laughs> like, I would not wear my PJ clothes to church, right? I would not wear... I don't even... What do you guys wear? Some of you guys don't even wear anything. You guys going to go to church naked, right? Like, you know, we... <laughs> not to point that out. Not to point that out. I don't want to give that I don't imagery. Bye. Bye. Don't, don't visualize it. Don't visualize everybody. Anyway, 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 we would not wear our night clothes during the day, right? Not, not when we're outside, right? And, and that's, that's kind of what it's talking about here. It's like night and day being awake and being asleep is the difference between living, living out and being clothed with Christ and being li and living continuing to live in this world based off of your desires and your successes and not take Christ into consideration at all is like night and day. And it might take for us to wake up and take off what we were wearing when we were sleeping and to put on the armor of God. Sometimes there might be a gap between who we are and how we live, right? Because we are children of God. We are saved. We are forgiven. We are free, but we might be living as though we're in shackles. We might be living under lies. We might be still in our PJ clothes during the day. Even if our spirits are awake, we might still be wearing the clothes that we were wearing yesterday. And bringing all that into our life now. But Christ has set us free. And he gives us the imagery of clothes to help us to understand what it means to live this new life. He gives us these two imagery aside to help us understand. We need to respond to God's offer of grace and allow his power in Christ to capture every part of our being. It takes for us to, just because that is who we are, doesn't mean we're living it out because we might not have taken off those clothes. We might not be willing to wake up fully. I know I'm like that sometimes, so no shame to you if that's you. 
But that doesn't take away the fact that just because we all do it doesn't take away the fact that we still need to wake up and put on the new clothes, okay? Just, I don't want you guys to be like, oh, well, you know, this person is also in this sin with me, therefore I'm chilling. That's not it. That's not, that's not how you live, okay? That's not, that's not Christian life. We are to spur one another on. And what do we put on? We put on Christ. And what do we put on? We put on the armor of God. Why do we put on the armor of God? It's because you need to fight. It often takes us, it often takes for, for us to put on a fight against our desires. It's not going to be a walk in the park. You know why? Because sinfulness is in us. And it's what we want. So we're going to have to fight what we want sometimes to be a Christian. We're going to have to fight to follow. Paul has warned us of war with the passions in Romans chapter 7, verse 23. He condemned the premeditated following of the flesh and its lusts, and now he reiterates the only solution, and that's to put on Christ. And it's not a once and for all thing. It's not quite like salvation, where it's like once and for all, putting on Christ is an everyday thing. And that's why Paul uses the imagery of night and day and putting on clothes. Because do you not put on clothes every single day of your life? I mean, if y'all walk around naked, like I, that's actually illegal. So don't, don't walk out of, I just want to point, don't walk out of your house without any clothes on for, for us kids who might just want to do it as a practical joke. You can actually get arrested for that. Don't do it. Um, we all wear clothes every day of our lives. We put, take off clothes and we put on new ones. And then those clothes get dirty and we take off clothes and then we put on new ones. And then those clothes get dirty and we take off clothes and we put on new ones. We do it every day of our life. And it doesn't change who we are, but it is a daily work that we need to work at. Right? In that same way. It doesn't change the fact that you are a child of faith, that you have been set free by the blood, that Christ loves the vulnerable and you are vulnerable and he has taken your helpless estate and shed his blood for your soul. None of that changes no matter what you do, but we need to take off our clothes and put on the clothes of Christ, put on righteousness, put on the armor. God did not call you into salvation for you to be a vegetable on the bed. That's cheap grace. Be like, oh, God saved me. Therefore, I'm going to sit on my butt and do nothing and never move, never change. Even if we do it visually right now, it's uncomfortable to look at. It's uncomfortable to think about. So why are you doing it? Open the blinds. Let the light of God into your heart. He is more powerful than your pain. He is more powerful than your sin. He is more powerful than all your questions. So open the light. Take off what you were wearing and put on the clothes he gives you. Even if they're scratchy and uncomfortable. Even if they need a bit of breaking in. gonna be all right and when those clothes get dirty God will give you a new pair we live the new life with Christ and the specific language about being clothed 
before we go into application, the specific language about being clothed is that he directs our life and our conduct. When you are clothed with the, when you are, when I explain it, I'll explain it this way. When I'm wearing my PJs, it's because I'm about to go to bed or because I don't want to do any work. So that's every day. Um, a fireman is not going to wear regular clothes to go to work. He's going to have to put on his suit. Right? A lawyer is not going to go to a court, like a trial in fluffy pants. They're going to wear a two-piece. My little sister is a nursing student. She ain't even allowed to step into the hospital without her scrubs. It's because your clothing often directs what you'll be doing. It is often indicative of what you'll be doing. You wear the appropriate clothes for your actions. And so the specific language of being clothed with Christ and being clothed with armor is because we're going to have to fight ourselves. We're going to have to fight our desires in order to remember the love of God. And that's okay. That doesn't make you a bad person. But you need to put on the clothes. You need to put on the darn clothes, all right? You ain't gonna walk to war with your old worn t-shirt that you've had since you were five. So how do we apply this? First thing, God over government, but still do your due. Don't needlessly break the law because you don't like it. Telling myself that, telling myself that, telling myself that. <laughs> I can be a delinquent driver. I try my best not to break the law though. Um, at least or to not get caught and don't do that. Um, we need to obey the law. Don't just needlessly break the law, okay? Um, government sucks. But our goal is not to be here. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Even while we fight for other lives, even while we fight to be heard, even while we fight for the body of Christ as a unified front against injustice, remember that your goal is not justice in this land, but your goal is eternity in heaven with God. Let that dictate how you choose to make decisions and live your life. Your goal is going to impact your decision-making. That's why it's important. Our goal is not fairness. Our goal is not citizenship for every immigrant. Our goal is not full equality for everyone, although those things are wonderful things. Our goal is eternity. How does that change the way you see the world and live your life? Our goal is not to be rich, it's eternity. You don't take all of that with you and your family doesn't take it with them either. So just because you leave it to them after you pass away, it doesn't mean that that's actually going to help their eternity. How you are as a parent changes from working all day to also sharing your faith with your children. When the goal is eternity. Don't be overly attached to this place. Second thing, remember to take off your clothes. 
I think that this is a very practical point of imagery. As you, as you press into the kindness of God, as he clothes you again every morning, his mercies and his blessings for you are new every morning. As you say sorry, and you put on, and you go through another day, and you let the light in. Take off the previous life. I was just listening to Chandler Moore's song. It goes, if you're looking for me, I'm under the blood. If you're looking for my past sins, I'm under the blood. If you're looking for the old me, I'm under the blood. Because the blood of Jesus is an ancient blood. It is an active blood. It is still a powerful blood. To follow God is to fight for God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you might take a stand against the devil's schemes. I'm reading from Ephesians, by the way. Um, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Notice how he says rulers and authorities here. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Salvation protects your mind. The sword is the active jabs you can fight with. The shield shields you of faith. Breastplate of righteousness. Belt of truth. Shoes of the gospel of peace. It is an ongoing fight. Adorn your heart and adorn your soul. The significance of the armor of God is it teaches you how to act. And it teaches you what God will be protecting you from. That righteousness protects your heart from shame, from lies, from guilt, from feelings that might hurt your faith. Salvation protects your mind from conformity to this world. There are things to be gleaning. To follow God is to fight, to follow him. And that fight is ongoing. There might be a gap between who you are and how you live, and that's okay. Remember, to be clothed with a new life, with Christ every morning. It's okay if you didn't make it last night. It's okay. Go back to the Lord. Surrender again. Put, on, put it on again. Our good, holy, righteous Father still loves you very deeply. Last but not least, remember that this is not a fight that is based on rules, but it is an active application of sincere love. The love of Christ through the blood shed for you, the body broken for you. 
as you live out your gifts, we talked about this in chapter 12, as you are devoted to one another, as you live in harmony with one another, you're under the blood. You're going to mess up, but you're under the blood. Your sin, your struggles, can't have any more of a hold on you than you let them because you're under the blood. And that also means our pain is under the blood. Our experiences of brokenness and marginalization in this country, they're under the blood. Our sufferings as a people, they're under the blood. How can we, how can we apply this into our lives? How can we stand for the broken people as, Bonho as Bonhoeffer did, simply as an act of living out our gospel, the gospel, but have eternity in mind? How can we be clothed with new life every morning? and be under the blood? How can we see ourselves with a lens of grace and not a lens of guilt and be under the blood? How can we receive, admit and receive God's grace for us today? Let's take this time to pray. Where are you guys at right now um, with the things that have been shared? I know I spent a lot of time talking about government and that's, and that's because it's, it's necessary, I think. Where are you guys at? Could we just lift up our hands from wherever you are? Could we just take this moment to lift our hands to God and go to God right now? To lift up ourselves to God right now. If you don't want to lift it all the way, it's fine. Just putting it open-faced on your laps. Lift up a prayer to God, asking Him to reveal in your heart the ways that your heart is so hardened by this pain, so hardened by the way that you have lived your life previously, that you have forgotten that you are under the blood, that you have not been clothed with the new life, that you have not looked even at your suffering, even at the collective suffering of our people, of the body, with a lens of grace and a lens of eternity. What is your goal right now? What are you looking to, to go towards? We must fight to keep our eyes fixed on God. And for those of us who are hurting, who sometimes feel like Christianity can support these actions as well as not support these actions, depending on who's listening. For those of us who are confused, why does Christianity allow people to suffer? Why does Christianity allow oppression to continue? Let me tell you something. That is not aligned with Christ. That is not who he was. 
This is why it's important to know the social location of what we read because Christ was never about that to begin with. He sees you. He sees you. But we also, as much as we fight now, we're not just fighting for a better world, we are fighting for eternity with everybody. You have to understand, you gotta have a bird's eye perspective on your life and know that your life does not end. We're looking at eternity with God and there will come a time where this world, as we know it, will end as well. That's what scripture says. Our goal is not to fix this broken world because that's impossible. But Christ did what was impossible so that we can be united with him. That's the true impossible thing. And that's already yours if you are willing to make that your destination. To make that your purpose. Right now, can we take this moment to pray? Lift that up to God right now. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.